0: Thank you very much, Justin. Yes. Wow. Today's been kind of crazy. In case you haven't noticed, like it was weird. We had a leak in the back. We had a bat in the building. It was just very strange. So thank you for rolling with us. This is like we're ironing out the crazy. Even the service begins. Wow. Well, hello. I am Pastor Anthony. Like you said, and today I'm starting a new mini series called Grace Cannon. Why is it called that? Because I'm a nerd. And I'm on staff, so we're having a staff meeting, and we're like, we want to talk about God's grace as it's disclosed in different books of the Bible. And I think, well, yes. we call all the books of the Bible together the canon. So I'm like, it's a grace canon. And I wanted the logo actually to be like a giant canon, with like all the apostles and prophets, like stuffed in it, like, um, something, <laughs> something, something like They didn't go for that. So this is the compromise. Fine, fine, I guess. Whatever, I, I got part of my way. All right, tonight's message is about how we see God's grace. And I apologize for the funky slides. This will be the last week we figured out the problem. Cool. How do we see God's grace, which is defined by almost every pastor ever as unmerited favor. Yes. So, and, and I will go a step further, and I want to just say, unmerited favor is like thinking, well, God thinks nice, warm, fuzzy thoughts about me for no reason. Grace is actually more than that. Grace is actually the manifestation of God's heart towards you. So he gives you unmerited favor. He feels kindly and compassionately. He's favorably disposed towards you and then shows that by giving stuff. Mm. Lots of different stuff, and we're going to talk about that. But today's message is on how we see this unmerited favor worked out in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke alone. I was going to go on a brief theological rabbit trail right about here, but I'm not, okay, <laughs> I'm actually going to do that, and that would be a whole different message, so sorry about that, if you're really curious to see you later, but here it is, I mean, this is basically the pattern for how we see God's grace in Luke, we see God giving the gift of Jesus, Jesus actually came as the long-awaited Messiah, as the Christ, that is a gift out of God's favor towards us, Right? That is God showing that he has kind thoughts toward us. He gives us a Savior. Then when Jesus is here, he gives himself. His whole life he lives for the sake of other people. In one way or another, he pours himself out in his minutes and hours while he's alive. And then, ultimately, he gives that life by dying for us. And at this point, I could say the offering drop box is right there. Have a good week. See you again. But we'll flesh this out in a little more detail. First of all, skipping the rabbit trail, as I said. Let's talk about the fact that every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is about Jesus as the Christ. It's about how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for the people of Israel. But they all put their own little, little spin on it, okay? So if you read Matthew, you're tripping over prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling. And Matthew really wants to hit hard that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Jewish prophecies. I mean, they've been studying the prophets for... You know, a long, long time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so Matthew's putting the pieces together for the people who might not be up on their Jewish prophecies. And you'll read Matthew and you hear, and this fulfilled so-and-so, and this fulfilled this, and this fulfilled that. So Matthew's heavy on that. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark is not that long. And half of it is the narrative about the Passion Week, Jesus' last week on earth. So all of that and his crucifixion. So it's actually been called a passion narrative with a very long intro, you know, which is not really funny, actually. Why do I say that as a joke? But in Mark, Jesus is the suffering servant, among other things. Typically, that's what you could characterize Jesus as in Mark. And John emphasizes Jesus' divinity. I mean, the allusions to Jesus actually being God are huge in the book of John. It's like he starts out with it hey, I'm going to write about this Jesus guy, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is in your face up front about the divinity of Jesus. And his whole gospel is, I don't want to say more heavenly than the other gospels, but it kind of is. I mean, Jesus prays for extended periods of time. They all have their own different flavor. And in Luke, it would seem to be that Luke is very focused on Jesus' heart for everyone. So, all people. This is not a new idea. I'm trying to work in a bit of my rabbit trail. When God appeared to Abraham in the Old Testament and said, Abe, me and you, we're going to start a people. And it's going to be my people. I'm going to watch over these people. It's going to be a nation. It's going to be my nation. We're going to do things my way. I'm going to give you favor. Me and you are going to do this thing, okay? Even then, he tells Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to the whole world everybody is going to be blessed through years. So God's plan has always been global in scope. And Luke is hammering this home. So we start out. Luke chapter 1, verses 3b to 4. You do not have to go very far before you run into this. Luke is writing an intro. I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. You may notice Theophilus is not a very Jewish-sounding name. This is probably a Greek guy. Greek meaning Gentile. Luke is not Jewish. Luke is a Gentile writing scripture. Jewish scripture. So right away, we're like, wow, this, this, this might be a theme that he might want to develop here. It seems like it's, it's already aimed at a larger audience than just the Jews in the first century. We move on. The Christmas narrative, right? The angels come, they see the shepherds. What do they say to the shepherds? The angels reassured them because they're scared out of their minds because an angel army just appeared in the sky. I'd be freaked out too. They said, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to how many people? Oh. All people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, you could also translate the Christ, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And in case you think all people is just a euphemism for all Jewish people, Luke goes ahead and spells it out nice and clear. Later in the chapter, this old man runs up to the baby Jesus named Simeon, and he starts prophesying to Jesus. And he says, Lord, thank you so much. You can send me, I can die now, God, because you fulfilled your promise to me. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations not just the Jews, everybody, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Not to belabor the point, but this was a big deal in the first century, a really big deal. In fact, even though God had called it and he said, I have a global plan, like I want to bring salvation, I want all the earth to be blessed, okay, through this thing I'm about to do, he did pick Israel. He did have a special relationship with Israel. He did kind of buddy up and partner with Israel. He gave them the law. He watched over them. He also had some harsh expectations, by the way. But the reason that Israel fell into this kind of elitist mindset in the first century was because God did pick them, right? I mean, you would start to maybe get an attitude about that after a couple thousand years. So Luke and Jesus are reminding them, hey, it's not just about us. We want to bring this salvation to the whole world. It doesn't take too long into Jesus' ministry for things to come to a head. Let me set the scene real quick. Jesus is born. Jesus grows up. He's about 30 years old. It's time for him to enter his ministry. We have some things happen in the book of Luke that happen almost to Jesus, right? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then Jesus goes off in the wilderness, and for 40 days, he's tempted. But the first thing that Jesus does in public with a group of people in the book of Luke is to go back to his hometown, his little town where he was raised. Think like the Lawton of of ancient Israel, right? This is not a big place. Everybody knew his name. They knew his family. They probably called him Jay. I don't know, but he goes to the synagogue. It's his turn to read. This is what he chooses to do. He reads a passage from Isaiah that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim basically the day of the good news of God. I'm going to set free the oppressed and all this good stuff. Closes the scroll and says, This is to his people, his hometown people. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, he was sent instead to a foreigner a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Luke has just set up a very Gentile gospel in four chapters. He's writing to a Greek. The gospel is for all. The angels say the gospel is for all. The prophetic word says the gospel is for all. And the first thing Jesus does is basically poke a cultural sore spot right in the eye when he goes to his home synagogue, picks this amazing passage from Isaiah, says the scripture is fulfilled in their ears, and then adds as a caveat this, which would seem to be a giant slap in the face. It's like he's telling all his Jewish brothers, hey, remember when we were in desperate need back in those days, and God didn't save any of us, instead he saved some foreigners? You remember that, guys? And and then appears to just let it hang. How do you think they'd react to that? They freaked out and tried to kill him. It says that they rose up and they grabbed him and they tried to throw him over a precipice and then stone him. But Jesus walked right past them and escaped. I like to imagine that Jesus was so tough that he could just like muscle through. I don't know how it happened. But they tried to kill him in his own hometown because of this idea that the gospel was supposed to reach for everyone, that God is looking on favor with people that they didn't look on with favor. So what is Jesus' reaction when his own townspeople try to kill him because of his vision for the gospel? Well, it's easy. He totally pieces out to Capernaum, which is this thoroughly Gentile vision steeped in paganism. So at this point... We might think that God is revealing his grace a little bit like James Dean, who (laughs) who does whatever he wants. You know, Jesus could almost be, like, painted as this rebel without a cause, like, cultural traditions, I don't care about that. Like, oh, yeah, is this a sore spot? Let me poke it. Like, get out of our town. Fine, I'll go to Capernaum. I don't need you Jewish people. I'm going to go hang out with the pagans. We're going to find out. That this is not exactly accurate, but I put it up here because the thought did cross my mind. And I thought, if anybody can strut around in the afterlife in that jacket, like walking like that, it's probably Jesus, and I don't think anybody's going to say anything about it. Amen. But <laughs> Jesus is cooler than James Dean. It is a fact. More me. Although James Dean is very cool. So God's grace is revealed in Luke by God giving Jesus as the Christ. But who does Luke hammer away that Jesus is being given to? Everyone. All people. And it immediately gets Jesus in trouble. And that kind of thinking will eventually get Jesus killed. Which is a little more serious than James Dean. And we'll get there. Next, Jesus gives himself. In the Gospel of Luke, like every Gospel, you have Jesus living a life of ministry. Jesus is not self-focused. He's always other-focused. And Luke has a lot more focused on who the other is than the other Gospels. Jesus' grace encounters everyone, all kinds of people. In just four chapters, from verse 431, where he pieces out to Capernaum, to chapter 8, here is a small list, and I missed a few, of people that Jesus encounters, okay? He's casting out demons. How many people know that demon-possessed people are not very popular?
1: Those are not the people
0: you want to win over and invite to your house, right? Nobody's trying to make friends with the demon-possessed people in the town, like trying to get a leg up in their social circle. It's not happening. He heals people with fevers. He heals leprosy by touching lepers. Also not a good idea if you're looking out for number one. If you were to touch a leper in that society, you were unclean. There were repercussions. But Jesus knows that he's Jesus. And when Jesus, who is ultimately clean, touches something that's dirty. He doesn't get dirty. The dirty gets clean. Amen. But that didn't make him popular with the people that were around, who were like, you don't touch lepers. What are you doing? They're not even supposed to be in the city. And Jesus is like, come here. I'm willing. I'll make you whole. So he's healing lepers by touching them. He heals a paralyzed man. The guy in the mat, that cut a hole in the roof and lower him down. Again, not getting much clout, probably, making friends with a paralyzed man. He calls a tax collector to follow him as his disciple. Tax collectors were notorious, horrible sinners. They didn't have that reputation for no reason. Many of them were just cruddy people. This one got called by Jesus, responded favorably, throws a party with his miserable sinner friends to celebrate being called by Jesus, and Jesus goes to the party. And they paint the picture of the gospel, like the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. Like, I, I imagine them like peeking in the windows, like, What is he doing? How can he eat with those people? I thought he was a rabbi. This is unbelievable. And then they complain, not to Jesus, because they're kind of wimpy, to his disciples. It's like, why, why is he eating with those people? You know, it's, it's really kind of funny. But he's not making friends, and he's not hanging out with or healing the people that you'd think you would want to be your friends. Hmm. Later, he compliments a Roman centurion. Not exactly a good guy in general. At the expense of Israel. That's an interesting story. <laughs> so this guy's servant is sick. And Jesus come, they, they come up to Jesus. The centurion sends religious leaders to Jesus. And they say, go tell Jesus that I built your synagogue and I'm a good guy. I need my, I need my servant healed. So these leaders come to Jesus and are like, hey, you need to do this for this guy. He deserves it because you know, he loves our, our nation of Israel. And he paid for our, our church building, basically. He paid for our synagogue to be built. Jesus does not care about that at all. But what he does care about is the fact that this guy had amazing faith. And Jesus compliments the guy's faith at the expense of the nation of Israel. He says, I have not seen such faith, not even in Israel. Almost as if to say to the guys who are just like, hey, he deserves it. He did all this good stuff. He's like, I don't care about that stuff. But man, this guy's faith. Why don't you guys get some of that He's not making friends exactly with basically anyone that you'd think you want to be make, making friends with. He raises a widow's son to life by touching the casket, another cultural no no. And then finally, he's invited to a Pharisee's house, very prestigious stone, you know, for lunch. The town hussy finds out he's there. I don't know a better word in English, but everybody in the room knows that this is a quote unquote sinful woman, right? She walks in, she's overwhelmed with emotion at seeing Jesus. She washes his feet with perfume and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus should be ashamed because everybody in the room knows what kind, what kind quote unquote, in the Bible woman this is. And they're making fun of Jesus because Jesus apparently doesn't, or else he wouldn't allow such a display. And then Jesus looks at his host, who they, they actually throw under the bus by name. He's like, Simon, I want to ask you a question. So now everybody's like, oh, it was Simon. It was Simon's house where it all went down. He's like, hey, if a guy owes a big debt and another guy owes a little debt and they both get forgiven, who loves more? And Simon says, probably the one that was forgiven the big debt. And Jesus says, this woman has been forgiven a big debt and you can tell because she loves much. And then tells the woman, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. This is not a Jesus who cares what anyone else thinks. But not in a James Dean way. He's not a rebel without a cause. This is a guy who's driven by something more than ego, more than needing to stick out, more than needing to like carve out his niche and break free of some sort of oppressive tradition that he's been raised with. It's not about any of that. And if we kind of read that into the Gospel of Luke, we make a big mistake. Jesus is doing this at his own expense out of love for all of these people. It's not about Jesus at all. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Luke pays a lot of attention to them. We already covered that. Women, people who, you know, arguably they weren't as terribly mistreated as we might think, but they were not prominent. They certainly weren't invited to follow too many rabbis. Tons of them followed Jesus. At the beginning of Luke 8, Luke says, hey, Jesus started to go around and travel to all these villages, and the apostles were with him. And then Luke keeps adding these little blurbs for extra details. And he's like, and so were all these women. And list the women by name. And then says, these are actually the people that were supporting Jesus. Yeah. That's amazing. He does it again in the crucifixion narrative. Luke is the only gospel to record Jesus stopping with the cross on his back bleeding to address the faithful women who are following him. And there's like a little couple paragraph blurb that Jesus speaks to these women who are being so faithful. And Luke records it. Women? Not exactly super prominent in the first century. How much does Jesus care? None. Because they were big on Jesus and Jesus is showing his grace to everyone. The poor. Luke is just all about poor people. We know the Beatitudes mostly from Matthew. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In spirit. You know what Luke says? Blessed are the poor. Period. Matthew says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know what Luke records? Blessed are those who are hungry. Period. Now, this is not to say that Jesus didn't say both things. This was probably a recurring message of his. Okay? He probably preached these same things over and over and over and over again to get the message across. But no doubt Jesus does care about people who are desperate to be righteous. But Jesus also cares about people who are desperate for their next meal. And in the Gospel of Luke, he shows that practically by hanging out with and blessing and giving grace to those people. And this is the last one. And I know I'm saying a lot of words, but I don't want this point to get lost because this probably is the big point in Luke. Jesus loves sinners, the nasty bad ones. Anybody who comes to Jesus with a repentant heart, Jesus is all about, you can shame him in public. Let let the town hall that everybody talks about come and want to wreck Jesus' dinner with all his prestigious friends and cry like a mess and wipe his feet. And Jesus is all about it. Because that's the person Jesus came for. And in Luke, sinners are treated with an attention that you can't find anywhere else. We love the story of the prodigal son, do we not? Mm -hmm. Only in Luke. We love the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Mm -hmm. Only in Luke. We love the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector punk, who comes to faith and, and, like, totally is transformed, right? He goes from sinner to saint. He's paying back the people he cheated. That's only in Luke. And you'll find something else in Luke that, that I want to mention briefly. It's not on the slide, but, man, it's huge. Anybody here ever sinned? We, okay, anybody, if you don't have to raise your hand for this, you mean a pattern of sin? Maybe there's a sin. <laughs> like, we got think it, like, yes, let me get out of a chair. Like, and like people who are addicts know about this. People who, sometimes people are in patterns of sin that they're ashamed of. They don't even like it and they can't stop. It. But you know what? Jesus is recorded as telling Peter. I think it's in Matthew where Peter's like, how many times am I going to have to forgive these miserable people? Seven times? And Jesus is like, no, Peter, 70 times Seven. And that sounds nice, right? We know Jesus is saying, forgive people a lot, Peter. But that doesn't resonate as much as what you can find in Luke chapter 17. It's not on there. I messed up. I'm sorry. But if you look at Luke's sinner, if you look at Luke chapter 17, he's giving the forgiveness talk. And he says this. He's like, listen, if somebody sins against you seven times in one day, If somebody sins against you seven times in one day and comes back to you and says, I repent, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. God does not tell us to do anything in following him that does not directly correlate to his character. Which is to say, God wouldn't tell us to do that and have that heart if that wasn't already God's heart. The disciples' response to that, by the way, is, you better increase our faith. That's the first <laughs> thing they say. Like, if we're going to have to forgive that much, I, I don't even understand how that's possible. We're going to need a little more faith. But they got it. Luke is all about sinners, nasty bad people, the outcasts, and even the people who are popular, like tax collectors, they were popular with their group, right? I mean, they had plenty of money. They're always throwing parties. Any sinner that wants to come to Jesus, Jesus is happy to receive and Luke especially points this out. So, this doesn't fit. Jesus is not some guy, a rebel without a cause, sticking his eye in his traditions, you know, trying to break free from the religion of his fathers, blah, blah, blah. This is much deeper than that. We can't read that in the Luke. This is much more like the Jesus in Luke. This is Mother Teresa. I know it's played out and tired and all that stuff. But I saw this quote, and I had to include it. She says, do not wait for leaders. Do it alone, person to person. Person to person. Insignificant person to insignificant person. Because really, no person to God is insignificant. And that is also a message of the Gospel of Luke. Not Jesus, a little more like Jesus. Jesus could act like this now, no one would care, but this is certainly how Jesus acted when he was on earth. And this is the heart that I think we need to have. I'm going to finish up. I feel like I'm going a little long, but I also know this is good. And you're all quiet, so keep on. <laughs> Jesus giving his life. God shows his grace, his unmerited favor towards us by sending Jesus in the first place. Did we deserve it? This is a key theological point. No. And yet, Jesus came anyway. Watch your attitude, sir. You're right. All right. <laughs> Jesus is alive. He pours out every ounce of his life for the sake of other people. That is also a display of unmerited favor. And the final display of unmerited favor, the final gift, is that Jesus actually dies for us. And there are two interesting and unique passages in Luke's telling of the crucifixion that I want to hit on. There's a lot, but we're only going to focus on two, and you should be grateful, because it's almost 8.10. Here's the first one. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Luke says, when they came to a place called the skull, which we should allow to be intimidating, they nailed him to the cross. He <coughs> just stopped there. That actually happened to a real person, which is horrifying, let me just say. When they came to the place, he's been carrying the thing on his back the whole time. He stopped to talk to the faithful women. They nail him to a cross. And then two criminals are also crucified next to him one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus knows he's going to die. And this is what he prays about the people who have just nailed him to a cross, which I hope no one ever has to experience ever again as long as the earth is spinning. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That is madness. That's crazy. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And as he looks down, he's praying for the people who are gambling for his clothes. We should allow the full scene to seep in now. They're gambling for his clothes because he's not wearing them. And they just nailed him to a cross. But Jesus knows, apparently, what kind of trouble these people could be in with the Father. Who just nailed the Son to the cross. And that thought, the thought of the amount of punishment and suffering that these people have just incurred on themselves... Is too much for Jesus, who has just been nailed to a cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. Please, they don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. They don't get it. They're just doing their job. How much does Jesus love sinners in the Gospel of Luke? A whole lot. An astronomical amount. amount so far beyond our comprehension. I'm, I'm almost ashamed that I can't comprehend it. And yet I'm afraid that I don't really want to. If I can admit that. Here's the next part. This Jesus doesn't stay dead very well. It's not a thing that he's good at. (laughs) He comes back to life. And when he comes back to life, he appears to his followers, freaks them out again, the thing he's very good at. And he says this. This is what is written. He's explaining why he just had to go through what he went through. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to... All nations, we're right back to the beginning. I came for everybody. I had to go through this. I'm the Messiah. Repentance in my name is going to be preached to all nations, beginning right here in Jerusalem. You, he's pointing to the guys in the room, the apostles and whoever else is there that's faithful. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And shortly after, the Gospel of Luke just ends. And you might think to yourself, kind of a bummer ending, right? But did you know that there's a sequel? (laughs) Just past the Gospel of John is the book of Acts. This is the intro. Tell me if it sounds familiar. In my former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Luke finishes the gospel of Luke in Acts. Luke is all about Jesus coming and giving himself. But Acts is all about us receiving him and giving him to other people. Let's skip forward to Acts 2.38-39 and this is my conclusion. God is good on his promises every time. The Holy Spirit comes. God himself takes up residence in his people to enable them to do what they're supposed to do. Peter, who had his foot in his mouth for all four gospels, preaches a real good sermon under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us, whom the Lord your God will call. The Gospel of Luke is about God loving everyone through Jesus. It's about Jesus' heart being poured out for absolutely everyone. No one is too shameful. No one is too dirty. No one is too rich in the case of Zacchaeus. All it takes is that you turn to him, and you will be forgiven. Even the people who nailed him to the cross, Jesus has too much compassion on them to allow them to suffer the punishment it would seem for what they're doing. I hope they took him up on his offer. And that's where we're at today. Will you take him up on his offer? Will you accept his forgiveness? Will you say, not only do I want to be forgiven, not only will I come... And if I have to make a show of it, I will. Like the lady who wiped your feet. But man, fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me go give this to some other people. Yes. Let me go give your unmerited favor. Let me lead people into what I've been given. I need to do that, just like I need you. Should we do every head bowed and every eye closed again? I think we should. Yes. Let's do it. Why not? Let's Every head down. Old school. <laughs> this man I was raised like Baptist. This is so Baptist. Forgive me. <laughs> Father God. Jesus, Lord, I ask that you would come and knock on hearts right now, like you've been doing for 2,000 years. Lord God, I pray that you would pound on the doors of our conscience, pound on our memories, pound on everything, Lord God, so that we open. Give us the grace and the willingness to say, come in, forgive me. If you know that you need to be forgiven just right now, you don't need to say it out loud, but tell Jesus, like Jesus, I need to be forgiven. Please forgive me said, Jesus, I know that you went and you suffered and you died for me, and I accept that. I am willing to trust you as a Savior. Be my Lord. Let me follow you from now on. And let me give people the forgiveness and the grace, the unmerited favor that you've given me. Yeah, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Guys, if you prayed that, even if you didn't. See, we said even if you didn't, so that people are like, "Oh, I can't go up front for prayer." They're kind like, No. <laughs> like, we have a prayer team up front. So if you, like me, and the rest of every pastor in the world, that's under there, know your miserable sins, come up to the prayer team. And the children of Genesis, get out of here. Thank you.